The Orthodox Journey. In this edition of The Orthodox Journey, we reflect upon the Gospel reading on the ninth Sunday of Matthew with Athanasios Collius. Stephanos Savropoulos will bring us our Saint of the Week. This week it's Saint Maximus the Confessor, while Maria Yakumatos will consider the question of why God allows suffering. This is The Orthodox Journey. The Gospel reading on the ninth Sunday of Matthew with Athanasios Collius of the Greek Orthodox Christian Society. Dear listener, in today's Gospel, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 34, we hear of the walking of Jesus on the water. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000 had just happened, and Jesus perceived that the people were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He immediately makes his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side of the lake, while he sends the multitudes away. He then goes up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. When Jesus came walking on the storm-tossed sea that night, the disciples did not recognize him. They were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. When adversity, suffering, pain and death are upon us, we too fail to recognize at first that Jesus is close at hand. Jesus speaks to them and says, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I is literally translated I am, Egoimbi, which is the divine name of God in the Old Testament, first revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is the second time Christ permits his disciples to be caught in a storm. The first time he was with them asleep in the boat and he calmed the winds in the sea. Here he had left them alone. In this way Christ strengthens their faith, that he will always be with them in the midst of the storms of life. Who has not faced storms in life? The storm of temptation, the storm of failure, the storm of sorrow, the storm of illness, COVID-19. Jesus came to save us not from storms, but in the storms of life. Storms may batter us physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. God permits storms in our life and delivers us through them so that we can see his protection more clearly. In the midst of their fury, Jesus is present to help us rise above the storms of our life. He says to each believer, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. In the hour of most need he went to them. Jesus comes to us too to storm-tossed souls today, and his presence brings the same miracle. The wind is stilled, courage returns, and calm is restored. Then Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Note here that Peter does not ask Jesus to walk on the water per se, but rather to come to him. His desire is not to show off and perform a miracle in front of the other disciples, but rather out of love to be with the Lord. He loved Jesus so much and longed to be near him. He demonstrates faith, too. He believed that he was able to walk on the sea himself. Peter's faith allowed him to walk on the water. He is able to participate in this divine miracle as long as he keeps his focus on Christ. As soon as he is distracted and doubts, he begins to sink. 
But when he saw how blustery the wind was, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? The Greek term for doubt here means wavering or hesitation. The cause of Peter's sinking was not the storm, but the doubt. Thus Christ does not rebuke the wind like the first time the disciples were caught in a storm with him, but rather Peter himself. And why didn't Christ command the winds to cease, but himself stretched forth his hand and took hold of Peter? Because Peter needed faith. When we lack something on our part, then God's part is to provide for us. He says to Peter, Why did you doubt, you of little faith? By which he meant that it wasn't the assault of the wind, but his lack of faith that had brought Peter's downfall. Had his faith not been weak, he'd have stood against the wind as well. This is why, even after Christ catches hold of Peter, he still allows the wind to blow, showing that we too will come to no harm if our faith is steadfast in the storms of our life. And when they came into the boat, the wind ceased. Previously they'd said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now this is not the case. We read that they who were on the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This shows us how Christ was gradually leading them all higher and higher, by walking on the sea, and by commanding another to do so, and keeping him from danger, he increased the faith of all greatly. On the first occasion he had indeed rebuked the sea, but this time he didn't, demonstrating his power more abundantly, in another way. This is why they said, Truly you are the Son of God. In today's reading, Peter doubts, wavers, loses courage. Was he not present with Jesus at the healing of the paralytic, or at the healing of the two blind men? Indeed, did he not observe firsthand the miraculous feeding of the five thousand? Why then does he hesitate? Why then does he doubt? Let us examine our conduct during the storms of life and consider whether our Lord's admonition to Peter, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? is also directed to each one of us. Let us not be wavering in our faith and lose sight of him who says to each of us, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Saint of the Week with Stefanos Stavropoulos of the Greek Orthodox Christian Society.
Saint Maximus the Confessor was born into an aristocratic and prominent family of Constantinople in the year 580. He was remarkably gifted in philosophical inquiry and was appointed as chief secretary to the Emperor Heraclius in the year 610. However, after three years, Maximus left his post to pursue the monastic ambitions he had longed for since youth. He became a monk at the monastery of Philippicos, close to Constantinople. After twelve years of hesychasm and ascetic struggle, he began to write his first treatises on asceticism, prayer, the passions and divine love. Owing to military tensions between Persia and Constantinople, St. Maximus travelled to Crete, Cyprus and eventually to Carthage. All along the way he would confront the heretical proponents of monophysitism, which claimed that Christ had one nature, the divine one. In an attempt to quash the growing tensions between the monophysites and the proponents of Christ's duality, Sergius, the patriarch of Constantinople, devised the dogmatic formula capable of satisfying the monophysites without denying the Council of Chalcedon. According to this compromise of monothelitism and monoenergism, the human will and energy of Christ would have remained passive. Christ's humanity is present, but absorbed by the energy of Christ's divinity. This was simply a disguised monophysitism, where the term nature was replaced by will and energy. Saint Sophronios was alone in raising his voice in defense of the two natures of Christ. His debates with Sergius in Constantinople resulted in the emperor instituting a ban on the topic being discussed in order to maintain the peace. Meanwhile, still in Carthage, Saint Maximus warily entered the dogmatic struggle in support of Saint Sophronius. Upon Saint Sophronius's death, Saint Maximus was regarded by all as the spokesman of orthodoxy. As in the times of Saint Athanasius and Saint Basil the Great, support of the true faith depended on only one man. In his many letters addressed to the Pope of Rome, to the Emperor, in open letters as well as in treatises, Saint Maximus demonstrated that the Word of God, through an infinite love and respect for his creature, had assumed human nature in its entirety, altering nothing of its freedom. Christ was free to draw back from his crucifixion, in so far as he was a man. He voluntarily submitted to the divine will and plan, thus opening to us the way of salvation by submission and obedience. Human freedom, united perfectly to the absolute freedom of God in the person of Christ, finds itself restored in its natural movements towards union with God and with other men through love. The removal of the human will of Christ is a removal of the sacrificial choice that Christ made in his death. This removal of the human element in Christ removes the divine element that has been promised to us in Christ's resurrection. When St. Maximus opposed monothelitism, this was not because of some technicality, but because such a view subverted the understanding of the full reality of man's salvation and deification in Christ. St. Maximus maintains that human nature without a human will is an unreal abstraction. If Christ does not have a human will as well as a divine will, he is not truly man. And if he is not truly man, the Christian understanding of salvation is rendered void. What we see in Christ our Saviour is precisely a human will, genuinely free 
yet held in unwavering obedience to his divine will. And it is by virtue of this voluntary cooperation of manhood with divinity in Christ, which restored the integrity of human nature, that we are enabled to make our own wills freely obedient to the will of God, and so to attain salvation. Sergius of Constantinople died in the year 638, and the next patriarch, Pyrrhus, was an advocate of monothelitism. Pyrrhus went to Carthage and faced St. Maximus in a public debate on the person of Christ. Setting forth the mystery of salvation with unswerving vigor, the saint succeeded in making Pyrrhus recognize his errors, and the patriarch offered to go to Rome in order to himself cast the anathema on monothelitism before the tomb of the apostles. However, he quickly fell back into his heretical views. Pope Theodore of Rome then excommunicated Pyrrhus for heresy. Fearing that tensions with Rome would aggravate the political situation, Emperor Constance II responded to the Pope's intervention by decreeing that all Christians were forbidden to discuss the two natures and the two wills. The Orthodox now began to be harassed and persecuted, especially the disciples of St. Maximus. He himself went to join Pope Martin I in Rome, who, adamant in the defense of the true faith, assembled the Lateran Council, which condemned monothelitism and rejected the imperial edict. Emperor Constance subsequently had Pope Martin arrested and brought to Constantinople. He was condemned and died in exile. As for St. Maximus, he had been arrested shortly before St. Martin, together with his disciple Athanasius. He had already spent many months in prison before coming before the same tribunal that had passed sentence on Bishop Martin. It was made to appear that the saint was on trial for political offences and for resistance to imperial authority. With his mind fixed on God and with love for his enemies, the saint answered the untruthful inquisitions and accusations with calm. Condemned to exile, he was taken to Thrace. In the course of his trial, St. Maximus heard that the new Pope, Evgenios I, was prepared to accept the compromise. St. Maximus wrote a letter to Rome, setting out the Orthodox doctrine, resulting in a revolt of the people against the Pope and the Emperor. It was now clear to the Emperor that he would be unable to win over the Orthodox until he had prevailed with Maximus. He therefore sent delegates to reason with him. St. Maximus refuted all their arguments with ease and again set out the Orthodox doctrine. With tears, he called upon the Emperor and the Patriarch to repent and return to the true faith. The messengers did not know how to answer the saint's arguments, so they merely assured him that if he did not submit, they would, he would be anathematized and put to death. Meekly and humbly, the saint said, May God's will be done in me unto the glory of his name. The emperor's delegates then beat him and showered him with insults. St. Maximus remained imprisoned for six years until the year 662, when he was brought back to Constantinople to face a new trial before the Patriarch and the Synod. St. Maximus was convicted of heresy. They tore out his tongue and cut off his right hand, the members by which he professed the true faith. St. Maximus was sent once again into exile, and died three years later. For the brutal tortures and afflictions that he faced, St. Maximus is called a confessor, one who suffers for the faith but does not martyr. 
The extreme importance of Saint Maximus the Confessor for the Orthodox faith cannot be understated. Apart from his ardent defense of the faith against heresy, Saint Maximus wrote commentaries on Holy Scripture on problems raised by Saint Dionysius the Areopagite and Saint Gregory the Theologian, and in his writings on the Holy Liturgy, Saint Maximus presents magnificent theological propositions. He charges man with his obligation to be the priest of a cosmic liturgy as called upon to gather together the inner principles of the Logos within communion in Christ and to offer them to the divine word in a free exchange of love so that fulfilling the plan for which he has been created he is led to perfection in Christ. Elder Emilianos of Simonopetra has this to say on Saint Maximus's writings on love and prayer. We talk about love but we really don't understand what we're saying. Let us therefore offer thanks to God and his saints, especially to St. Maximus the Confessor, who has revealed the truth to us and made our hearts to draw closer to God. If only for a moment you long for the things which St. Maximus is speaking, then you will see how much you will change and how your whole being will be illumined. Just for one moment truly long for these things and immediately you will see how easy it is is it possible that God would ask impossible things of us? If all of these things are impossible, such a thing could never be true. For St. Maximus to say that love is the fullness and completion of everything, that love is perfection, and that love unites us with God, it can only mean that love is not difficult but easy. St. Maximus's legacy in the monastic and theological tradition of the Church set the course for his vindication in the Sixth Ecumenical Council, where monothelitism was declared a heresy and St. Maximus was proclaimed a saint. St. Maximus's falling asleep is commemorated on the 13th of August, which was falsely thought for many years to be the date of his, the translation of his relics. He was thus mistakenly commemorated on the 21st of January. His Contakion, a fitting tribute to his teachings, goes... Let us the faithful praise with fitting hymns that lover of the Holy Trinity, great Maximus, who clearly taught the divinely given faith, that we should give glory unto Christ our God, who having but one hypostasis, has in truth two natures, wills, and energies. Let us cry to him, rejoice, divine herald of the faith. Amen. Orthodox Spiritual Reflection with Maria Yakumatos of the Greek Orthodox Ladies' Group. An Orthodox clergyman of our Archdiocese was asked the following question. If God loves us, why does he allow suffering? His response was as follows. Firstly, we must remember that many times we all worry over things that we do not need to worry about. We may think we are suffering, whereas in reality we are worrying unnecessarily. It has been said, if someone throws a dagger at you, it makes all the difference if you catch it by the blade or catch it by the handle. Two people may be going through the same illness or other hardship. One may see it as a catastrophe and the other may be a lot more patient and at peace. Secondly, it needs to be acknowledged that a lot of suffering occurs because of the faults and shortcomings of others. Some people are difficult to live with, cannot accept that they are wrong, have a huge temper, are selfish, greedy, etc. If God has pre-programmed all of us to be considerate, loving, humble, etc., there would be a lot less suffering in the world. In response, we need to explain that God has created us free 
and that there is an enormous beauty in freedom. On this issue of the trials we go through due to others, we need to point out that the fathers of our church encourage us to actually see these trials as a type of blessing. For example, if someone criticizes us, we could respond with anger or by becoming depressed. It is better, however, to realize that by being criticized, we are actually being helped to achieve something we all desperately need, humility. If someone does something very unfair to us, again, this has the potential to help us grow spiritually. We can struggle to forgive them and have the faith that God will bring justice. In general, if we are patient and tolerant with difficult people, we are on the road that the saints walked on, a road that leads to the kingdom of heaven. Why does God, who loves us so much, allow suffering? A number of points need to be raised. Number one, we have been assured by the Bible that if God has allowed us to go through suffering, he knows that it is not greater than our ability to cope with it. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Number two, God knows better than us what is good for us. Number three, a few years of suffering, even decades of suffering, is very tiny compared to the eternity of happiness in heaven, and if our patience helps to lead us to heaven, then it is worth it. Number four, we can grow through suffering. Our Archbishop Stylianos once said, There is a secret law that God has put into the depths of his creations, that they will discover their best self, not when they have worldly ease and wealth, but through suffering, poverty and humility. When the olive is beaten, it produces oil. When the oyster is injured, it produces a pearl. Through suffering, our eyes can open. We can realise things that previously we could not comprehend. Through suffering can come character. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which he has given to us. Number five, no one can comfort another person who is suffering as well as someone who has suffered themselves. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of The Orthodox Journey. To keep up to date with our podcast, subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts 
or head to orthodoxjourney.com where you can find even more Orthodox articles, talks, sermons and podcasts. Yeah.